This episode is part of Season 1 of MesoTV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Novacure, Bellick & Fox, LLP, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC, Vogelzang Law, and Merrill Lynch. So, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Vanderswal. It's so nice to have you with us. Um, I know that we're going to be speaking about the topic of chemo brain, and I'm almost tripping across the word and wondering, is that proper terminology, or what is this phenomenon, what is it really called? So, yeah, colloquially, we think of it as chemo brain, um, but in research settings, what we really talk about is cancer-related cognitive impairment. And the reason that we use a different term isn't just to be more fancy, it's really because um, what we know now is that it's not simply the chemotherapy that's contributing to cognitive difficulties. In fact, there are a whole host of contributors. And I think that's sort of liberating because the type of medication and treatment you need is something that's often, um, there's not, a, not very many degrees of freedom. You, you have very few choices in that matter. But there are a number of other things that we can address with respect to improving cognitive outcomes in patients who are receiving treatment for cancer or who are cancer survivors. And so broadening the terminology really reminds us that there are a number of things contributing to our thinking skills and a number of ways to, to address those thinking skills. Thank you. So, uh, you know, this conversation for today has come about because, you know, we, we have a large support group. And in the support group, this topic came up, and uh, I think it was George. I think, George, you actually addressed the question. You brought it up. Um, so, George, do you want to talk a little bit about yourself and, you know, your introduction to what, you know, you call this chemo brain? I started getting the chemo brain <clears throat> after my fourth session. Um, it seemed to um, feel like you got off like an amusement ride almost. Um, little trouble navigating around, but I found that if I get up and move or do something with my brain, um, particularly driving, I was still driving and it gets rid of it. Um, I was still working at the time and it just seems to get better the more that you exercise. I have a gym in my basement. I go down and do a workout in the evening and I wouldn't have chemo brain for the rest of the night. It would go away. Um, the next day you get up, um, you have a little bit of it, and it seems to come on in the afternoon. And then if I started moving around, um, getting some exercise, it would go away. By the time I got to my sixth one, which I was just past, I, it's, it's, it's not as bad. Mm -hmm. I still have it once in a while, um, but it comes and goes. So <clears throat> I've dealt with it pretty much, you know, since March 26th is when I was diagnosed and I started getting um, the chemo sessions in April. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Vandersol, how is this diagnosed? Yeah, so well, first what you're describing is really typical. What we often hear is that once treatment sort of ramps up and you build up a bit of the treatment in your system, the patients start to feel some cognitive changes. And for some folks, it really takes the form of difficulty finding the right words that they want to use. Uh, people may be more forgetful. They feel like they can't multitask like they used to, you know, talking on the phone and cooking dinner, something's gonna get lost in that shuffle. Um, and so these sort of fairly simple activities that they used to do with relative ease 
um, tend to become more challenging. And, and we tend to notice that it ramps up as you start treatment um, and sort of plateaus through treatment and often will get better with time, particularly once um, you know, a round is done, people will start to sort of recover. And so there are a couple of ways of diagnosing cancer-related cognitive difficulties. Um, one is through asking patients, you know, asking you what you're noticing, asking your loved ones um, whether they've noticed a change in your thinking or your ability to do uh, your normal everyday tasks. So those are usually done with questionnaires. And within the realm of mesothelioma, that's really the primary way that we've looked at cognitive functioning. Um, the other way is through formal cognitive testing. So I'm a neuropsychologist and what I do in my clinical practice is bring patients in and discuss the dis difficulties they've been noticing across a range of different thinking skills. Um, so we have things like our language skills, our ability to pay attention, how quickly we think, um, our visual skills, our ability to find our way around and navigate, our ability to learn new things, to remember the, that new information later, and also what we call executive functioning. So planning, problem solving, reasoning, inhibiting ourselves, um, you know, speaking with that filter that we all typically use so that we're polite in conversation. Patients can have a range of different um, experiences and areas in which they feel like they're having difficulty. So what I do is I meet with them to discuss those difficulties and how they're playing out in their everyday life. Then we walk through some paper and pencil tests or even video tests now that we're doing things on the computer remotely to be able to get some numbers to put behind our patients' observations. And part of the reason that it's important to do both or ideal to do both is because quite often patients will say, well, I have horrible memory because they're not remembering inf new information. But that can be because of a number of different issues. And quite often it's because patients aren't actually attending and in the moment and really letting new information sink in and so if you're not getting it into your brain, there's no way to pull it back out with your memory later, right? You've gotta be attentive and in the moment. And quite often when we um, are in the midst of cancer treatment or a lot of different things going on in our life, it's harder to be sort of present and to keep our mind from wandering and to be as efficient as we used to be. So it's helpful to have the cognitive testing and the patient reports. And what I do is I put those together um, in the context of your medical history and the things that you're doing in your everyday life when we figure out whether you're having real cognitive difficulties, what areas are being affected, what are your strengths, what are those areas that we can rely on to sort of navigate and circumvent your cognitive weaknesses, and we come up with some really practical strategies to help you function better and be more efficient. And I'm also looking to help address any other issues that might be contributing to cognition. Um, so these can be things like sleep difficulties and fatigue, substance abuse if patients find themselves drinking too much to cope or using other substances, um, keep an eye out for medications because just because you have a cancer diagnosis doesn't mean you don't have other medical conditions that are being treated and some of those once we start getting lots of medications on board can affect our thinking. Um, sleep difficulties, mood difficulties like depression and anxiety that can be treated, that all can be used to help boost your mood by treating those issues. So um, how does a patient or when does a patient come to your attention? It really varies. You know, um, I think that patients often have to be a, an advocate for themselves when it comes to their cognitive and mental health 
Um, in some patients that comes very naturally and for others, they often will feel like, well, I'm speaking with my oncologist or my provider and they're focused on you know, prolonging my life, treating my disease, keeping my quality of life as good as possible. And they do, your physicians really do care about your cognitive and emotional functioning. They, some may not ask about it routinely. Um, so I would encourage people to talk with their providers about any difficulties they're noticing with their thinking or their mood, sleep, fatigue, all of those issues, um, because you can be referred out for, um, for a more formal workup. And um, you know, not every, every hospital or center has neuropsychology, but um, colleagues are often able to find somebody in your region. Um, there's also what's our board certification group, which is the American, um, it's the American Academy of Clinical Neuropsychology. So the AACN.org, where you can look and find a, a list of board certified neuropsychologists all across the country. So you can find somebody in your area who's going to really understand what you're going through, how to address those issues and sort of help get you on the right path. Right, because you know, um, I know that a lot of the people who are leading the discussion in the group, many of them are long-term survivors who have been through chemo, radiation, um, other medications, et cetera, and still feel that they're, they're suffering the effects of, you know, uh, therapy from years, uh, from prior years. Mm -hmm. So they may not be connected with an oncologist anymore, um, maybe seeing, you know, just a local, you know, their local physician who's maybe not as aware of, of these issues. So I think knowing that there is a society that we can point to um, with people around the country will probably be very helpful. Uh, Steve, you, you had some unique challenges and sort of a unique solution. Would you like to talk to us a little bit about, you know, what you've observed and what you've done? Yeah, so um, I was first diagnosed in um, January 2018, and I went through my first round of um, chemotherapy and eventually had um, shadow reduction surgery in high tech uh, for my peritoneal epithelium. <laughs> And I, I started noticing uh, as I was going through treatment, I was getting the, the uh, chemo brain effect. Um, it kind of started as a fog. I just felt like I was in a fog. Um, and then um, I started noticing a lot of the cognitive ability, like you said, I mean, just remembering things. Um, I had to um, get in the habit uh, when, I, when I have these symptoms to write things down. So typically when I'm in the moment and you know, I'm going through the day, and I'm writing things down. And if there's things I need to remember to follow up on, I got to write them down because I forget. I mean, you know, the next day it'll be a memory. It won't, won't be a memory. I mean, I'll have to go back and recreate everything. So writing things down's really been helpful for me to make sure that you know when I start my day the next day that um, I have a, a a list to begin with, and then eventually, you know, things will come back. Um, but it, it it is a struggle, and I also find that in order to focus and concentrate, I have to close my eyes sometimes just so I can, you know, really hone in on what's being said and that type of thing and, and be able to process the thinking on that. I don't know why, but closing my eyes and just, you know, going through that helps a lot. Because I think you take, you know, some of the other, you know, busy activity that goes away that catches your eye. Um, so, you know, I, I I had a couple of questions, maybe we, we, we cover that later, but I mean, I, I'd be curious to know uh, once you finish treatment and you're not getting chemotherapy, how, I mean, what can you expect to how long are those, is that effect gonna, gonna be there? I mean, I know it starts getting better, but you know, you get moments and you know, it's, um, 
and, and you never know when they're going to hit. Sometimes I can go the whole day and, you know, be fine. And then there's other times where, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon, I, that's it. I'm done. And, you know, and I, I've got to, I've got to rest and just kind of shut down. Um, and then whatever, what other kind of therapies can you do? I mean, is there some homeopathic um, remedies that, you know, some people find helpful um, you know, some things that you can do at home that might, you know, like George says, he exercises and that seems to help. Um, but what are some other things that we can do to cope? Uh, really, really um, sort of standard compensatory strategies. A lot of what you're describing are the things that I tell my patients. You need to start writing things down, um, writing them down in an organized fashion. <laughs> so we don't want to have sticky notes all over the place because that doesn't really help us. We want to create a habit. So habits are really ingrained. The way we, um, the part of our brain that, that is involved with habit forming and carrying out things that are habitual is separate from our our ability to, to learn and remember sort of new instances. So putting your keys in the same spot, you know, paying the bills on the same day, doing things, setting yourself up for success by creating as many sort of habits as you can can be really helpful. Writing information down. Um, I often tell, tell folks that, you know, when you work on things, you're gonna need to turn off the email reminders and the cell phone buzzing you know, maybe pull the blinds or in your case, you know, shutting your eyes, reducing all that extra stimuli, the things that you don't need to be paying attention to so that you can really focus your attention on the things that are, um, that are key for you can be really helpful. Giving yourself extra time, realizing that if it used to take you a half hour to do this task, you're gonna lob on an extra 15 minutes because you think you might, you're probably working a little slower and you might wanna check your work Right? Those are all things that we sort of recommend for patients, um, as well as, as George said, exercise. Um, we know that exercise is really helpful for our cognitive and mental health. And so this can be very low, low intensity exercise. This can be stretching, um, even things like deep breathing and more yoga type of activities that don't, that can be done from your chair, that don't necessarily involve, um, you know, lots of cardiorespiratory activities can be very good for your thinking skills, but also for your mood and for your sleep. And so exercise, getting fresh air, doing things to help calm yourself and center yourself can be really effective in improving multiple aspects of your experience that all can be contributing to cognition. And in terms of the timeline, what we generally think of is that symptoms are worse during treatment and tend to get better over the first year or 18 months. Um, and most of that research comes from um, breast cancer patients, um, lymphomas and other types of cancers. We don't have, and some lung cancers, but we don't have a lot from mesothelioma. We don't have objective cognitive testing studies in this population yet. It's something that really I think we need more of. Um, but there's no reason to think that we wouldn't see that same sort of gradual improvement. Now we do know that around 10 or 15% of patients will have sort of long-term subtle difficulties with their thinking. They don't get all the way back to their baseline. Um, and usually these are, you know, weaknesses that are not profound enough to keep them from, you know, engaging with their family and their social roles, but they are bothersome. They're noticeable. And that's when we want to make sure that we're doing the things that we can to sort of set you up for success in terms of structuring your life and your expectations to meet where you're at right now.
say, uh, um, I hope that, you know, I'd, I'd like to ask, um, you know, what your experiences have been with, uh, with chemo brain and, you know, I, I know you had some unique uh, ideas about how you've been able to rechallenge yourself and get back on track. And thank you for your information you've given us so far, doctor. So um, about a year after, I, I definitely, uh, when I had chemo and it ended in August of 2017, uh, I did feel sluggish, uh, foggy in my brain slower than ever and I didn't know that that would improve it was it was a little bit scary and then uh, about a year later I was asked to uh, be on the faculty for a music uh, it's a, a summer opera institute a two-week program and this meant driving an hour to Modesto I'm in Stockton California and uh, each day back and forth. And it also meant studying music and, um, and teaching students vocal exercises and, and their pieces. And so I had to know the music in order to teach it. And this was pretty scary because I did feel like uh, very sluggish. I didn't know whether or not I could do it. Uh, it was that foggy. I would, I would, I would be, with my grandchildren whom I know I've I've known them since birth and and I look at them and I couldn't remember their names it was very uh disturbing and so to, to take on music I thought well it's, it's been almost a year maybe I can do this and just uh I, I was pleasantly surprised that as I did it it seemed to uh, clear up my brain and uh, it became sharper. I, I was able to um, you know, access that which I had learned before and I, I thought I'd be sluggish at the piano, but no, it, it started to come. And by the time that two weeks was over, I was absolutely amazed at how that fogginess went away. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and then I started to teach again in the fall, I'm very concerned. I was offered a job and I was like, I don't know if I can do this physically and, and with the brain. And, uh, but I was able to. And so for me, doing the brain exercise of music, that, that helped me. And I would walk also. Uh, I walked fairly regularly, maybe three times a week. Right. So. And, and, and that brings up a great point that I didn't mention earlier is that engaging in cognitively interesting tasks. We know if, if we look to the literature on just healthy brain aging, so as we get older, we lose some of, some of our cognitive skills. Uh, we slow down. We don't remember quite as much as we did when we were younger. Other things get better. We get wiser. Our vocabulary gets larger. There are definitely pros. Um, but one of the things that we know from studies of healthy cognitive aging and how to keep your brain healthy is that there's no one sort of magic activity that we can prescribe people. So it's not all about doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku. Um, what it really is about is finding something that is engaging and novel 
and challenging at that level that's sort of just the right fit, not so hard that you're not going to be able to um, ever, you know, succeed, but sort of in your window of abilities. And that tends to be something that um, really keeps our brain healthy. So a classic example is doing something like taking ballroom dancing classes because it's physically engaging, it's socially engaging, um, it's always sort of novel. You have to be watching what your partner is doing, right? Um, so doing things with, in groups, um, but also making sure it's something that you enjoy. I think the good news from that literature is that if you hate crossword puzzles, you don't have to do them. <laughs> or if you don't love brain training games, you don't have to do those. You can do the things that are naturally, um, that naturally call to you in terms of your interests and you can drive benefit from those. Do you have an opinion of um, audio books versus the written book in terms of uh, challenges to the brain? Yeah, I mean, probably reading is a bit more challenging um, but I think there's a trade-off there between wanting to challenge your brain and wanting to enjoy a good story or learning something new. And so I'd, I don't think anyone should ever feel um, guilty for listening to a book rather than, um, than reading it if they find that that's the way that they're best able to engage. Mm -hmm. So are there some other uh, suggestions you could make for people who are listening to this call of some simple lifestyle changes they could make that may have an impact? Yeah, I think that um, making sure that you are addressing your your sleep can be really important. There are a lot of um, a lot of really good studies that even without cancer, just having poor sleep, and that means having you know seven or eight hours of restful sleep. You may get up once or twice a night to use the restroom, but if you're falling back asleep and you're really getting a good eight hours, that's really important for your cognitive health. And if you're finding that you're having difficulty falling asleep or you're falling asleep okay, but you're waking up at two in the morning and you're not able to fall back to sleep, um, that can really have some impact in your thinking skills as well as your mood, right? We've all been overtired and feel that crankiness that sort of comes in. Um, we're not able to regulate our moods well enough. And so when we're doing that over long term, that can have, have real impact on our quality of life and, and how we're functioning. And so we know that there are certain non-medication treatments that can be really good to help with your sleep. And that's um, one of the things I'm thinking of specifically, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a type of psychotherapy. It's very different from sort of the, you know, what you see on lying on the couch and talking about your mother. Um, it's very structured. It's, you have homework and it really trains you to think about how you're thinking and how you're behaving. And um, it's very effective for helping improve our sleep um, and basic sort of sleep hygiene. We tell people, you know, your bedroom should be cold. It should be dark. It should be used for sleeping and romance, not for doing your taxes or folding the laundry or watching television. Um, we really want to sort of have that be a respite. And when you go to bed at night, you're encouraged to, you know, lay down, dark room, all of that. And if you're not asleep in 20 minutes, even if you're fatigued, if you're finding you're not nodding off within 20 minutes or so, get up, go to another room of the house and do something quiet like reading or puzzles or whatever you find sort of soothing. And then when you feel like, yeah, all right, I'm ready to go lay back down, then try it again. So you're always sort of pairing your room with successful sleeping. Um, so sleep is really, really key. And there are you know, fabulous sleep experts who can sort of help get you on board um, with that. 
Um, also, you know, fatigue, even, even in, the, in the face of good sleep, we know that there's something called cancer-related fatigue. And this is fatigue that's not related to how much you sleep or how much physical activity you've done. It's not like you can just say, well, I worked hard all weekend and I'll go, you know, binge sleep all weekend and I'll feel, feel better after a few days of like heavy sleep. It really tends to be sort of persistent. And, um, and that cancer-related fatigue can impact our thinking skills and our mood, just like our, our evening fatigue issues or sleep issues can. And so what we try to tell people to do is to maybe chart your fatigue during the day. When are you feeling most alert? When are you most engaged? See if there's a pattern to your particular levels of energy throughout the day and try to match up your activity schedule to, to that alertness schedule so that you're doing your most challenging tasks at the time of day when you have the most energy to devote to them. Thank you. Um, you know, we touched on or we uh, sort of breezed through, are there any supplements that people should consider taking? And I know this is, I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of prescribing or, but I'm just, you know, I'm just wondering if there's something that we could advise or that they could speak to their doctor about. Sure. So I will preface it that I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD, so I don't prescribe medications. But what the literature tends to show is that, um, unfortunately, things like ginkgo biloba, which are great for the brains of mice, just don't seem to work well in humans. That's one that we had this very nice, large, you know, phase three clinical trial of ginkgo biloba. And unfortunately, it just didn't help humans in the way that it does rodents, which is disappointing, but it's good to know. Uh, so right now, there don't tend to be any supplements that have any good data behind them to say that they are effective. Um, what we do tend to see is that prescribing things like um, stimulant medications that are often used for ADHD, like Adderall, Ritalin, Concerta, some patients find that helpful. Uh, modafinil, other wakefulness agents to help combat the fatigue and sort of increase the mental sharpness um, can be helpful for some folks. Um, others have taken some of the um, medications that are more typically used for Alzheimer's disease, like Nemenda, um, and those have been used in cancer populations with some success in some populations. Um, so, some, so there are you know, medications that you can talk with your providers about and see if they might be worth trialing and if there's no medical contraindications for those. Um, but we don't have much in the way of sort of um, homeopathic or supplemental medicines where agents where we have good research. It may be that they're, that they're out there, um, but we don't have good data on them yet. And along those same lines, I'm being increasingly asked about cannabis, marijuana, and CBD oil. And I think that we're in the same position where the, the popularity of those agents is, has not, is far ahead of where the research science is. And so we don't have good studies to tell us how um, patients are doing if they're taking CBD oils or if they're using cannabis to help um, with anxiety or sleep or appetite and things like that, how that affects our cognitive functioning. And so right now we're sort of in the wild west and we, uh, there's not great guidance. Have you heard of anything with essential oils that have proven to be effective for some people? Yeah, I've not seen any literature on that either. Any good sort of, you know, randomized clinical trials are our gold standard. And so I haven't seen any of that in the published literature. And like I said, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just simply means it hasn't been studied. 
And then, um, as I was going to say, is I think too that you know one you know an, another area that we always need to consider when we're having forgetfulness or the fog or the difficulty pushing through, um, particularly in this time of COVID, I think people are experiencing more anxiety and more depression, and uh, both of those are certainly are related to cognitive functioning as well. So, uh, I would imagine you know a visit with you would help to sort out you know, what are those impacts? You know, is, is one having a greater impact than the others? And can they be dealt with, you know, a piece at a time until we can really work on that entire picture to get a patient healthier? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I think that, that being diagnosed with a cancer is a very stressful situation. And we know that there are big spikes in the rates of anxiety symptoms and depression immediately after a diagnosis and usually those level out sort of within the first four months or so as the treatment plan gets put in place. Um, some of these, you know, unknowns become known and we get a, a bit more of a plan in place and there's some sense of control. But there is a subset of individuals who will experience more prolonged or persistent elevated mood difficulties or anxiety problems. And those are really addressable. Um, and it's not anything sort of um, fancy or specific to cancer you know, it's the same treatments that we use for individuals in terms of antidepressant medications, um, psychotherapies. Um, they work just as well in, in the oncology setting as they do out in um, the regular community. And so we know that some medications and some conditions, particularly involved with breathing issues, can create this increased sense of anxiety just related mm -hmm. to the disease and the specific symptoms as well. And so there are tools to sort of learn slower breathing um, and being able to sort of help control your physiology so that we're not uh, experiencing as much sort of unpleasantness and anxiety or nervousness related to those sensations. Thank you. And I guess, you know, one other piece I'd like to bring up too is that, you know, especially we have, you know, right now we have representation from the patients, but, you know, your caregivers, you know, your spouses, your children, et cetera, are also experiencing these levels of stress and perhaps some dysfunction as well. So, you know, taking some of your suggestions, um, doctor, and, and using them as a team approach with, you know, the spouse and the, spouse and the patient or the caregiver and the patient, maybe, you know, just improve the whole, you know, the whole home, you know, the whole home front, yes. you know, everyone's mood and everybody working as a team. And, you know, perhaps as you said, ballroom dancing, something that would be fun for a couple, you know, cancer sometimes steals that fun factor from the house. And, you know, people fall into the role of patient or caregiver, and they forget that their main role is spouse. So I think, you know, getting back to that um, also is, is, could be very helpful. And that's a really good point. You know, it's, it, it's not all about the patient. There really is always a whole system in play and mm -hmm. a lot of folks who have different needs. And, and patients and their caregivers come to this diagnosis with different backgrounds. Some folks are more prone to having anxiety or depressive reactions. Some couples have had very stressful times in their marriages or in their relationships. And so this is sort of the next step in an evolving um, relationship and household for many folks. And so it can be helpful to get everyone on the same page and you know, learn coping skills and techniques, um, not just for the patient, but for the family member and, and the whole system who's sort of moving through this process together. Doctor, I have a question mm -hmm. about uh, being in groups when our white blood cell count is down because of chemo, 
um, I, I, I at least have been concerned about my immunity, um, my immune system being compromised and if I am in a group mm -hmm. setting. Is that, a cons is that something I would need to be concerned about? So I'm not a, an MD physician, so I'm not, I can't give medical advice, but I will say that, you know, I think in general, the notion is that we want to be extra cautious um, when, we, when we're dealing with um, our oncology patients. We want to make sure that our patients are not being exposed unnecessarily. Now, that said, nobody wants you to be living your life holed up in your bedroom and not engaging with other people. And so it really is figuring out ways, like we all are um, in the midst of this pandemic, to be as engaged and out there and enjoying your life as possible while trying to be responsible for yourself and others by distancing and wearing masks and, and washing hands and all the like. My white blood cell count, every time I get the blood work done, is always right where it's supposed to be. And the oncologist, when I first went there, I was taking a lot of vitamins and they told me to cut them out because it will work against the chemo. And right now I take uh, vitamin B12, I take a supplement. I'm still taking the folic acid and also take vitamin D. And it seems that my white blood cell count is consistent every time I get a blood test. That's good to hear. And as long as you're mm -hmm. open with your providers about what you're taking, I think that's always mm -hmm. the key is that we can't be um, sort of hiding things from our providers. Because if you feel strongly about taking something and so strongly that you're going to do it regardless, um, then they should know so that they can do their work taking that into account. Yeah, they said vitamin C was a no. Do not take mm -hmm. vitamin C. Yeah. And I was taking that, so I've stopped it. Yeah, yeah. There are so many sort of interesting interactions that you wouldn't wouldn't think of if you're not sort of well versed in this world. And so there's, I think that openness and honesty with your providers is really the the best way to go, um, just from a safety standpoint. I think you mentioned something novel, um, uh, or master a new skill, uh, such as learning to play an instrument or learning a language. So. What would be the difference of, of something new rather than something that we already know how to do? How would that help our brains? You know, I think it's finding that right fit of, a bit of challenge, right? And so we're not trying to do something that's far beyond our ability. You know, I'm not going to learn to be a, an astronaut. Um, but something that is uh, that is engaging, novel in the fact that it's new to you. So you may be an art connoisseur and going to new types of museums, going and seeing modern art as opposed to the, the art that's always pulled your attention, right? So in that same genre, but um, doing something that's a little bit new, requiring you to think a little bit of a different way, um, having it be social, like I said, you know, whenever we're interacting with other people, it keeps us on our toes more and makes our, our experiences novel. Um, so I think that we can do sort of more of the things that we love, pushing ourselves so that we're getting into that challenge zone, so that our brain is you know, using its plasticity and, um, and growing and improving, or, you know, trying something slightly different, um, or even completely different, taking up something new and seeing how it works for you. 
And I oh, definitely don't think you need to get rid of the things that you already are successful at, you know? You could, no, you know no. I wasn't thinking of it that way, but just uh, the idea of something novel and how that, uh, how that yeah. will help um, to bring clarity to our brains. Well, thank you very much. And I want to thank you, Dr. Vaniswell, for, you know, being willing to meet with us today. This was, I think, extremely helpful. It was also a pleasure, you know, in the days of COVID to be able to connect with, you know, um, so many of us, uh, it's just the group experience is always great. So thank you for leading the discussion and for all of your positive uh, suggestions.